0: Futoshi the unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I have come to receive and hold it within my sight and hearing, I vow to fathom that the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Good evening, everyone. Greetings. Uh, to all of you here at the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery on uh, Saturday night. It's the 19th of June, and we're lecturing on the Avatamsaka Sutra, the Flower Dormant Sutra. So I'd like to invite you to join me in uh, invoking the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas of the Avatamsaka Assembly, and the text is here. We'll chant it in Chinese to begin.
1: No
0: Please turn in your text to page 96 and 97. We're on the second stanza tonight. <clears throat> we uh, we usually begin by uh, reading it first in Chinese because we got this textual our canonical language was Chinese that we got it first in uh, and we have an English translation here and it's a way of just honoring the source. In Chinese they say yin shui, siu yuan." You drink the water, you recall where it came from. So uh, we do the Chinese first and then we'll do the English following. We'll do one stanza first. And because we're in the uh, what's called the repetitive verses part, the, the text has already been explained. The prose part, but this is sutras often repeat in verse form. Although historically they say it probably went the other way around, probably it was first spoken in verse because it's easier to remember and probably it was chanted probably there was a melody to it uh, it's it's metered it goes bump a bump bump the right number of times and in order to remember it people put verse put melodies to it by and large um, this is something that happens across cultures so We thought it would be interesting to just temporarily put a melody back to it so that we can, as we chant it, it kind of uh, exercises the other side of the brain as well, give us a chance to remember it better. So so that's the idea, and we'll do it first in Chinese, then in English, and then come back and do the chanting with the melody. So I'll give you a line, and and you repeat after me. 如是常休息 When they always cultivate. Thus, they always cultivate, by day and by night never lazy nor fatigued, by day their good, roots and more pure. Their good roots brighten and become more pure. Like gold that has been smelted in the fire.
1: Like
0: gold that has been in the fire. Okay, let's try a melody
1: here. Rū <laughs> 圣根 Never lazy or fatigued. By day and night, never lazy or fatigued. Their good roots brighten and become more pure. Their good roots brighten and become more pure. Like gold that has been smelted in the fire.
0: Like gold that has been smelted in the fire. Okay, that's provisional for sure. We're just trying that out to see how it works. We're talking about bodhisattvas. If you have uh, just joined us, this is your first chance to hear a Mahayana Sutra put into English. Or if you come every week um, and listen online, wherever you might be listening from, because we are in fact webcasting as we go, and um, people have been finding this uh, webcast all over the world, which is interesting application of technology to something as ancient as Explaining Sutras. So if you have, if that's you, suppose you, you have been away for a while and you're just tuning back in, um, this is called the Ten Grounds chapter, the Ten Stages, the Dasha Bhumi chapter of a sutra called the Flower Adornment, and this is our our provisional translation this is just uh, uh, i don 't want to say we 're making it up as we go that 's not correct. We are applying tools we are using skills hard earned uh, and because um, we, for example, I grew up in Ohio, so my Chinese was learned uh, from high school on and Clearly, it's a second language, so we have to. It requires us to be humble as we do this and say, uh, "This is a work in progress." And the, uh, the sutra, however, the sutra itself, has been in our human consciousness for nearly 3,000 years, give or take five centuries. And um, the uh, some people would say it's been here forever uh, because. The sutra itself, where does this sutra comes from? come from? The sutra comes from a human mind that has been uh, purified. That has been... We have an analogy tonight that works really well. It's like gold. It's like what happens to gold when you smelt gold. and The process, we'll get to it in a minute, but briefly it involves putting the gold through fire until the dross comes out. And when you do what the Buddha did. You put your body and mind in the fire of cultivation until the dross comes out. What's left is, they say, the nature. And of course, what is the nature? The nature is our human nature expressed at its optimum. It's it's a person to the very fullest potential. It's the best person possible. And what you find there, according to this particular lore, according to this learning, is wisdom. And when the wisdom goes into expression, what comes out are called sutras. So, in other words, to shorten it, means that sutras are inside your mind. Your mind. My mind. Why don't I know that? It's because my mind has not been uh, refined to that point. So, there's lots of stuff in the way. Um, The Buddha is a title of a human who did that, who put his body and mind into the fire. Worked on it, worked on it, worked on it. Um, what would an example be? Uh, if you thought at one point, I would love to play the piano. The piano has got 88 keys and it's this big music box. And Some people sit down at the piano and release Chopin, and Beethoven, and Brahms, and other people sit down and just make cacophony, just make horrendous noise. What's the difference? Is discipline, application, hard work. And out comes this music that can transform your mind, music that can calm you, music that can bring tears to your eyes, music that can delight you. Because why? You've done the work. The the Buddha is a human who did that work, and the sutras, lo and behold, they say, are there? You don't have to read to be able to speak sutras. You don't have to um, apply for anything. You simply have to get rid of what's on top of them already. So, uh, if you can imagine a mirror that is perfect, let's say you got a mirror that's absolutely just honed and true, no. Uh, No play in it, a mirror that's completely pure. But then you take Vaseline, just smear the Vaseline on the mirror. Or you take spray paint, paint over the mirror. Or you uh, chip it and crack it and just put a curtain over it. The state of that mirror hasn't changed except what was on the top of it. And by analogy, our minds are the same way. And yet, the promise is always there that if you wipe off the Vaseline, if you true the mirror, grind out the scrapes and, and scrape off the paint, take all the hard work to get it back to mirrorness, lo and behold, you get a perfect reflection of everything that's in front of it. And so the mind is the same way. So that's where the sutras come from. They come from not adding anything, but in fact, reducing, removing what's clouding over the, the mind. So the Buddha did that, and that our tradition, our Mahayana tradition, mind you, there's more than one Buddhism. There's a lot of Buddhisms. Our tradition says that this sutra was the first one the Buddha spoke. That as soon as the Buddha became the Buddha and woke up, because Buddha is a title, it means awakened. As soon as he woke up, he wanted to talk about what he saw, what was new, what was different. And the sutra was the story. This is what he saw. And so it's uh, about bodhisattvas, these awakened beings. And it's uh, the uh, bodhisattva is, again, it's a title. It's called Awakened One. And there are all different kinds of awakening. Here, in this chapter, where we are, we're talking about mm, you could say big bodhisattvas. These are bodhisattvas who are not beginners. And So you think, well, that leaves me out. Mm. Fair enough. However, the inspiration is real. Um, You can look at uh, the Los Angeles Lakers and say, I'll never be able to dunk like Kobe Bryant. You know, I'm just not going to get there. But uh, Kobe Bryant, at one point, was standing, looking up at that rim and thinking... That's so high. I can never dunk a basketball. I'm only 12 years old. Now, maybe Kobe Bryant could dunk at 12. I don't know. It's possible. I, this, I am amazed at the, the skill of, of NBA players. But um, all the same, uh, nobody starts being the best. You work at it, and nobody starts awake. We get to these Kobe Bryant-style bodhisattvas, these amazing, living, unselfish Human beings, by one selfless act at a time, so it's very analogous to to skill of any kind. So, what do they do? Let's look at our text. These are Bodhisattvas. Page ninety-six. There's ru shì rì yè wǔ xié jīn. Let's look at word by word. Rú thus. In this way, like this, chan, constantly, always, xiu, xi, shi, cultivating and practicing. I really like that word xi. Uh, there are precise etymologies, there are precise tracings of the word. And there are kitchen etymologies, kind of do-it-yourself etymologies. And the, the line between those two kind of blur, but let's look at the homemade description of what that is. This is one of the words that it's fun to talk about. The I'm looking at word number five on the, that line there. It's over the X I. Look at she there. The top part is wings. It's wings, just like bird's wings. There's actually pictures of pictures of kind of it's a derived way of describing uh, bird's wings. Or you could say feathers because it has the kind of the rib and the the, uh, the feather part of the feather. And down below is bai, which means white. And if you think of how does a bird fly, the bird flaps its wings so fast that it blurs. It looks white, i.e. almost clear. You can't tell that the bird's wings are moving unless you do it in slow motion. and You can see this very graceful unfolding of of tendons and energy like that, but in, in action in, in real time, you just can 't see it. The wings are blurred, so that 's how fast a bird has to flap his wings in order to take off. They turn white or clear right. What does it mean? practice you got to do it that much in order to really practice. You have to repeat an action over and over until it becomes. Almost invisible. That is to say, wholly integrated into your lifestyle. That's how the the bodhisattva practices the dharma. That's how often the bodhisattva meditates. That's how how long the bodhisattva turns to kindness instead of anger or meanness, selfishness. So you have to practice until it becomes a blur. So I like that. Uh, That example of of a character giving us its own definition. That's a kitchen etymology, right? That's a homemade description of what that word means. But sometimes they work. Um, Xiu has also a lesson for us. Xiu xi. Sometimes Xiu xing, right? We know that as cultivation. This is Xiu xi. It works just as well. Xiu here means repairing, to repair, to fix it. And the reason why that's a helpful reminder for cultivation is the way, um, the way our teacher, this is Master Xuanhua, our, our founder, here's pictures, um, the way he gave us the Dharma was always coming back, it was always adjusting it, fixing it, which indicates what? Usually we weren't there. Usually we were too too little, or overshot it. It was either too hard or not enough. And xiao always has the, the the notion of making it right, adjusting it, fixing it. So another idea implied in that is there is a it. Well, what's the it? It would be zhong dao, the middle way, moderation, the mean. M-E-A-N, right? meaning the middle, the true middle. And the Dharma that the Buddha explained hits that true middle. And most of the time, we go too far or not enough. And that idea, it resonates throughout everything I've encountered in Chinese culture. Chinese medicine, for example, is all about balance. When we're sick, it's because not enough, or too much and a skillful chinese doctor is always bringing us back to the middle so that's a neat idea for in my heart because it implies that ultimately there is something standard it's not entirely whatever dude right it's not up for grabs that humanity being a human being to the ultimate point there is something to aim for. It's not totally relative. Now, in the bigger picture, it is. I mean, we're free to do anything we want. Free will says, go do what you want. However, there are consequences to what we do. And that always helped me sleep better, to know that there was a mean, there was a middle. And if I found it, I would be in harmony with something big and old and true and zheng in Chinese, something proper, something that worked. And you know it when you leave it. Now, is it mysterious and something the Chinese own? No. Try to ride a bicycle before the wheel is round and you know exactly where this is at, right? If you try to ride a bike without the wheels being Trude, and it's a verb, right to true the wheel to get it equidistant from the hub and all the spokes, you wobble all over the place, and you, you're wearing the tires out, and it might throw you off the bike, and you can you, you, can, uh, you can feel it immediately when you're off the middle, when you're too much or too little. Um, I had my tires replaced and balanced this week. Somehow the bill got to be $300 of labor. Don't ask me how. But that's neither here nor there. Um, but they told me that, oh, it's the wheel bearings. Wheel bearings are out of it. It's the wheel bearings, man. And I said, <coughs> excuse me, uh, 30,000 miles ago, you replaced the wheel bearings. Oh, son of a gun. Sure we did. Uh, maybe it's the tires. So they fixed the tires. Hey, guess what? Hey, the noise went away. Well, it wasn't the wheel bearings after all. Saving me a $1,000. Oh, yeah. Good thing you remembered. Right. I thought so, too. So, truing... Uh, and they, by the way, your toe-in's out of line, man. Okay, well, you fix the toe-in. Yeah, toe it out. <laughs> Whatever you do, I don't know. Toe it. In other words, they align the wheels. With alignment, suddenly... Good old Subarus running just fine. There you go. that's that's the middle. And you know when you're out, but when you when you hit the middle, there's nothing there because why things are going right. You don't notice when you're off the middle, you get sick, your bicycle wobbles, you think your wheel bearings are bad. you know in fact, it just needed. It needed middling. It needed putting back. And that is the word you adjust. You you adjust. You balance it. You put it back in the middle. So that implies that usually it's off one way or the other. Usually it's too much or too little. And if you can accept that and not have to like micromanage it and force it to be all you know, it's like, oh, okay. So cultivation is this very human process of adjusting, You're always adjusting. For a lifetime. That works. Remember there was a great uh song back in the seventies. Uh it was a um whose song was it? Take it easy, take it easy. Don't let the sound of your own wheels drive you crazy. Lighten up while you still can. Wait. Jackson Brown's. Um, so, in cultivation, you have to take it easy, but you also can't take it too easy. You have to also keep to the middle. But that that middle exists is a huge... Relief. And Chinese culture, having been around as an entity for five millennia and longer, um, historically we date it back that far, probably it had roots before that, and having influenced, you know, Vietnam, Korea, Japan, Philippines, Malaysia, everywhere that Chinese culture spread, that middle held, the middle held. Like Yeats' poem, right? the middle does not hold. The middle holds when you find this middle. And I think that's why China got the Dharma from India and it stuck. Uh, I think the Dharma that the Buddha spoke arises from that middle. And the Chinese were ready for it. And somehow, we're ready for it too, in the West. Maybe because we're so far off the middle that we're reaching for something to balance us. Maybe that's why the time has come. Australia also, for some reason, seems to be, just as a, the entity that is Australia, seems to be ready to hear the Dharma. This, we'll have to come back in a hundred years to figure out why, but uh, why certain p- places uh, have what's called the Gan Guansheng, the Mahayana nature. But this, this seems to be, you know, this not the p- t- purpose of our talk tonight. But just to look, why did China get the Dao? Why did China get the Dharma? It's because this notion of the middle was so deeply rooted in the culture. So we'll see how, how we do here in the West. So in this way, they are always shoshi, adjusting and practicing. They're always balancing it out. What else? Jian. Um s- sun night, in other words, day and night. So constantly, by day and by night, wu jian No laziness, no fatigue, no tiredness. Now, if cultivation was Muscle work. If it was still white knuckle cultivation, you'd get tired. You would definitely shiyan. So somehow, these bodhisattvas—if if we accept the notion that the, the sutras talking about us, about the bodhisattvas that we can become when we aspire to waking up—somehow we got to internalize it. Otherwise we'd burn out. You could translate this colloquially as, um, "They're always adjusting. They do it all the time. They never burn out." How you know? How can you do this stuff without burning out? Answer would be, internalize it. It's not muscle. It's mind. The Tao is, the middle is a real place, frictionless, you might say, no friction, and in reaching for it, in adjusting to find it, we can get to a place where being unselfish becomes a habit. Being kind is the effortless way. We don't start there, because why? Where are the models for kindness? Who models true empathy? Selflessness? Not the marketplace. Man oh man. The marketplace says, Me for me. I'm loving it. Cause I'm eating dead bodies. Process with French fries that never go bad. Have you seen have you seen on the net? There's a there's a an experiment happening, how long the McDonald's french fries can go without changing in appearance or form at all. <laughs> like, years. It's scary. Uh, anybody who saw Super Size Me, right? That wonderful movie, Supersize Me, okay. So Spurlock uh, goes out and buys, you know, the American meal. Growing up in Toledo, I knew the American meal. We had it, it cost 50 cents and it was a hamburger, fries, and a chocolate shake. 50 cents at the local White House. And Spurlock goes out to all the local places. He's got a mom and pop shop. He's got a big burger and a Wendy's and a McDonald's and a, a, uh, uh, some other chains, In-N-Out Burger. And he buys the all-American meal at all these different places and then puts them under glass domes, right? sets them down, and then comes back every day to see what's happened, to see how they're doing And the mom and pop, you know, you'd assume real potato french fries, real beef burger with real ketchup and stuff, pretty quickly starts to, you know, this greens, the the white mold and the fur, pretty soon they, they become, they decay. And they do what organic things do, is they decay and you can see it becomes mushy and you don't want to eat it because it's real food, right? And he goes to the Wendy's and takes a little longer and Denny's, he goes over to the McDonald's Unchanged. (laughs) Just like the day he bought it. Looking like those Japanese food displays in the stores in Japan. You you look at the picture. I want that one, you know. It looks real, but it's plastic. Somehow the McDonald's fries are the same week in and week out. (laughs) What are they made of? They don't decay. They're not organic. They're not food. You you think, after I eat them, do they decay? (laughs) Are they still there, you know? Oh my God, how many McDonald's French fries have I eaten that are still intact in my, somewhere in my system? Good Lord. So after Spurlock did it, other people imitated it. And so you can go online and look for the ongoing McDonald's French fries experiment. There's a webcam trained right on the French fries, you know. Unchanging for day after day after day. So, okay, so the Bodhisattva is, he is, you know, organic. These practices are organic. They have to be internalized before you can do it. They have to be in your heart. You have to be kind. You have to be selfless. And we don't start that way. We start, the world tells us, I'm loving it. I want all the gusto I can get. You know, me and mine. Customized, personalized, my very own. I want it that way. This is how I like it. The Buddha Dharma says, well, it's profoundly not a commercial Dharma. In fact, if the self insists on having it my way, then expect a world of conflict, the world that we have. And when we can say, you know, huge egos in competition, consuming a finite earth is not a winning formula. That's a finite formula. There's going to be a time when we consume the planet to death. We'll still be desiring it and it'll be gone. What then? So, how about using our insight, our foresight, and changing the formula and saying, what about if instead of being all out for me, we try to collaborate? The earth is a community, not a commodity. What about if we try to share that good old fashioned word? What about if we ask ourselves how much is need, how much is greed? And do less greed and more satisfying needs for more people. If we do that, sustainable. We can do it longer. So I'm saying that that there are profound cultural, social, universal implications to these dharmas that make a huge difference in our, in our future. So the Bodhisattva says, yeah, um, I would like to live in a way that I can sustain this goodness because cultivation is based on a view that ultimately humanity, human nature is wholesome. If you take it into the realm of philosophy and debate an ultimate principle, then the Buddha nature is neither good nor evil, but doing makes it so. Before the doing, there's nothing at all. Would be, and mind you, this is a. Uh, right as soon as you say that, you've you've stepped into a realm of of dialogue for hours and hours, years and years. The Buddhists and the Vedantists, the Hindus, have been having this dialogue for as long as there has been um, people waking up. uh, Is is the nature good or evil fundamentally? And um, There's a time when that's useful and valid to to have those dialogues. In terms of cultivation, know that uh, it's as simple as uh, preference for life. Every tradition would agree that not killing is wholesome it's a mitzvot. It's a good. It's a wholesome deed. And so, just there, you know, from the from the seat of our pants, from where the sandal hits the pavement, goodness exists to that extent. So the human nature human nature seeks for goodness. Chinese culture says, de, that literally heaven, but you could say nature, in the big picture, things prefer to live. Creatures love their lives, obviously. Okay, to that extent, goodness exists. Here, if we move towards goodness, we're going to find an effortless way of sustaining xiao-xi, by day and by night, this... Practice this cultivation, this adjusting by day and by night without fatigue. For example, we can eat without participating in the slaughter of a billion lives a week for food. We can. The human animal does well on plant based protein. Not preaching, just saying. There's an example. However, we're into, as a culture, in the 21st century, into a practice of getting our protein, meeting our protein needs through animal protein. The result of that is, is a, a habit that increases suffering because beings love their lives. So, okay, just to say, it, we can adjust. Let's move on here. Let's look at the next two lines because there's a beautiful image here. Good roots progressively or literally turning bright and pure like fire smelting true gold. All right, involved here is the word shangan. Shangan is uh, that quality of goodness. In the Dharma, they carry out this notion that human nature is good and say that that good human nature appears you can see it 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 appears in various ways it's not just a notion you can actually see it and what are good roots well one good root would be the uh, the ability to change the ability to change we're not fixed that's a notion that we're not fixed we can we're influenceable we're changeable, which means what? We can say I was sorry. Last week we spent the entire lecture on that first line up at the top: Tanquades the Dzongchen, being made beautiful by the ability to change and and improve. Repentance, in other words, repentance and reform. So a wholesome root is the ability to change. That we're not fixed. We're not stuck in any one way of being. Um, The Buddha, in fact, there's the story of the Buddha vowing to save his cousin, Devadatta, who swore to kill the Buddha and tried. He tried his best. Devadatta really worked at trying to kill the Buddha. Didn't make it. Fell into the hells and the Buddha said, I will indeed, I will save him. So the nastiest of people, in fact, even demons, they say, and the Buddha Dharma talks about their existence, even demons get saved because why the nature fundamentally doesn't hold good or evil it's really malleable in the expression we move towards goodness when we're teaching our kids how to be be good we care right but in the ultimate place that nature contains everything not limited to this good stuff right the nature contains the deeds of a hitler and a Paul Pot, and a Mao Zedong, and a Stalin, uh, and me on a bad day. You know, the nature in, contains all that stuff. And it also contains the potential for infinite goodness. So, those are good roots. Their good roots progressively become brighter. These bodhisattvas become better and better because why? They're adjusting they 're really working on it they're working they 're paying attention they're paying attention, and when they do things that they see, make people hurt, they back off. When they do things that hits their heart and makes them warm and just makes other people light emerge, they continue cultivation, finding the middle, like fire smelting true gold here's the analogy. Um, this returns, by the way, in the Ten Grounds chapter. The, uh, the notion of, of our nature being like gold um, comes back as a theme. This is a, um, an image that returns in every one of the Ten Grounds, so it comes back ten times. And the idea is, I've, I've never smelted gold. I've never been near it. Uh, Professor Birnbaum, on the other hand, is a goldsmith. And I've talked to Raul about it. He, when he was working his way through Colombia, uh, he actually was uh, a goldsmith and a jewelry designer. And the notion is that gold is, um, there's an element, right? It's in the periodic table. And so when you find gold, it's, mm, it, I don't know, are there. Does gold start out as different qualities? I know it's the admixture. Some has more dross or not, but it's gold is gold. When you assay it, gold is gold. Now, if you, you know, gold can be like tiny flakes, just particles, or it can be things you pull out of, out of the ground, a vein, a seam. Um, I was in Montserrat, a Benedictine monastery high above Barcelona way, way, way up in the mountain. And Montserrat has been there for a thousand years in various forms, uh, 700 years in its current form. And they, so in those 700 years, the kings of Spain, the emperors, and uh, the rulers of Catal- Catalonia there have centered around this monastery for a long time because it's, it's a magnificent, sacred space. And with all that history, they have an incredible museum right in the monastery. They, they have uh, implements that have been offered by the kings when the kings wanted to... Maybe their conscience were bothering them for slaughtering so many people, and so they went to pray at Montserrat, hoping to save their soul, you know, and I'll give a lot of gold to try to save, you know, because I been, haven't been sleeping very well after I massacred those soldiers, so or whatever. But that's cynical. Maybe those kings were very wholesome and were doing great good. In any case, repeatedly over all those centuries, the kings would empty out their treasury for the greater good of the Catholic Church and particularly at Montserrat for the Holy Blessed Virgin, Virgin Mary, the HBV, my Catholic friends call her, the Holy Blessed Virgin. So she radiates just like Guanyin Bodhisattva at Montserrat. And there, that's where the Black Madonna is, this incredible um, image of the Virgin about this big, uh, holding holding Kumara Sudhana right there in her lap. And she's got, you know, they both are holding the Chintamani, their, their Ruizhu. It's astounding to see how much this looks like Guanyin. And uh, that's a story for another time. But we've done the comparison side by side. And when you're there, you feel like you're in the presence of great compassion. And in the end, we're not fighting. It doesn't matter who got there first, right? Did the Catholics... Uh, Steal Guanyin, or did Guanyin compassionately appear as a Catholic saint? You know, the answer is yes, no. Nobody's keeping score. I think humanity has to express compassion. It's in us, and when we do, this is how it appears. That's probably a, a an effective way to look at it. There's the Black Madonna, and her throne. The wall above her, behind her, beside her, is all gold. Astounding what gold will do. Pulled out of the ground, but when it's worked with care and devotion and love, this gold gives you a feeling. I'm, I, you know, monks don't do jewelry. We don't have, I haven't, I, I have a watch. With a stainless steel watch band. Um, I never did in my life do much, any kind of jewelry. I know there are people who do, they put it in their teeth, bling, you know. But I never understood, and, and I could see that a lot of people did. People love, love precious stuff. But when I stood at Montserrat and saw what um, Emperor So and So, King So and So, did to honor the Blessed Virgin, I understood something about gold's quality to represent value. It's a precious metal. It is truly special and rare. And no matter how the gold began, this humble thing pulled out of the earth, when it was worked and shaped and offered to the spirit of Compassion, the mother of Jesus, it catches your imagination for goodness. That gold holds your imagination. It's valuable and it reflects something beautiful and pure. doesn't start there. It gets worked into purity like fire smelting true gold. Now, true gold is just gold. It's Huangjin. It could be uh, Zhenjin. It could be Huangjin. The Chinese, the, um, the current Mandarin word for gold is Huangjin, yellow metal. So this is Zhenjin, the same thing, meaning true gold. The way you go to get from this thing you pull out of the ground to what you offer up to the Blessed Virgin in this incredible mm, this this is that's the main altar down below I had you in the in the museum the museum has crowns and scepters and uh goblets and plates and uh things that bishops and cardinals and archbishops and popes use these incredible implements benvenuto cellini's golden salt cellar is in the louvre right You can see this this salt thing that Benvenuto Cellini, who was supposed to be one of the best goldsmiths ever, uh, put together. So there was that. But what I'm talking about is the main altar where you just, you go and worship. And I maintain that something about this gold, having been smelted, when you see it, it can transform you. People, I saw it. People go, mind you, to get to where they, you go through the whole church. Montserrat, I, I really, it means sawtooth mountain, serrated mountain. Um, if you get a chance, if you're anywhere near Barcelona, uh, go take the time to go to Montserrat because it's just going there. You feel like you've been through a pilgrimage. You start below and you have to wind your way up, wind your way up, wind your way up to the top. And then you go into this huge plaza, and you go through the gates to get to the plaza, and around you are these images of saints, and you're up on the top of the mountain, you're looking down over the valley, and it's very uh, very uh, conducive to pure thoughts. But you go across the plaza, into the church, and the whole architecture is focused upon this one image that's about this big, way down there, just like our Guan Yin. If you Turn and look, those of you who can. Guanyin Bodhisattva is standing here on our altar. And in terms of perspective, she's the focus of exactly what I'm looking at. And everything kind of centers on her, more precisely the halo behind her head, that mirror. It's like that at Montserrat's church. You go, but you have to go around, and you go up on the side of the church through this wonderful worship space with a high ceiling and the beautiful sounds coming up. And you feel holy. You feel blessed. You feel like you're on a heavenly road. You're definitely heading in the right direction. You feel that way. You're leaving things behind you. And you go alongside, the right-hand side, through this hallway and there are arches and you're passing side altars where there are saints and images of Jesus on the cross and it's very transformative and then you go before you, just before you get you're already at the end of the church this long narrow space a Benedictine church and you go up the stairs and the stairs are small there's a, a narrow arched stairway and you could reach up and almost touch the ceiling as you go and it's fairly steep and on every inch of the stairway going up are these warrior saints. They're standing there. There are frescoes in the wall on both sides. And some of them have swords, some have spears, some have Bibles, some have, have uh, shields. And they're on both sides. And there's this narrow space. So you feel very much like you're being allowed, being permitted to approach. You're being tested. You have to measure up to get up the stairway. And every inch is tiled and gilded and painted and shaped. It's a very special passageway. You feel like you're working to get through this passage. And you get up to the top and suddenly to the left you're about to approach the Blessed Virgin, Guanyin Bodhisattva, and the gold starts. and there's You're about 10 steps away. And people at this point, their hearts are wide open as they approach. You can't do this unless you're made of wood and you've got your eyes closed. You can't go there without feeling like it's time to open your heart. It's time to tell the truth. You know, and people take the next 10 steps and there's the image there she is you can reach out and touch her although too many people have done it so she's behind plexiglass but <laughs> it's you know people not only touched her they invited her home with them you know <laughs> stole her off the wall so they got her behind plexiglass and her she her pearl her wish fulfilling pearl is coming out of the plexiglass, so you can touch it and make your wish. And you can see—I mean, I stood there. I was, was a, this is the way Catalonia does their saints, and they have been doing it very successfully for a very long time. Because why? They said three million people a year do this. Three million pilgrims a year go up that mountain from all over the world. Okay, so you come by and you make your wish and you touch her pearl with two fingers. And I stood there for a while, trying to blend in as inconspicuously as a Buddhist monk in robes can be in the golden hallways of Guanyin Bodhisattva. So I just recited Guanyin's name and nobody saw me. It was interesting, you know. So who knows? So I watched the faces of the pilgrims coming out. And it was these old ladies, mostly, by and large, who may have waited their whole lives for this chance to get close to the Black Madonna, to get close to the Blessed Virgin, to tell Guanyin their story, you know, to empty their hearts for Guan Yin. And there, you know, you couldn't be unmoved by the sincerity and the wishing to merge with the the Virgin. Just saying, finally, here's somebody who knows my story. Pouring it out for, for Mary. And just all of this focused spiritual energy, I think, has a force. Because that room is full of light. You can feel it. And nobody's there except on feast days, which happen a lot. Somebody's there to move you along. If you want to spend a half an hour with Mary, you can do that. And I just stood there watching the expressions of the pilgrims and how much that image fills the need. We need that expression of compassion. Somebody, finally, who can be as soft as possible. No cynicism, no edges, no meanness, no deals, not a heavy, just completely human and soft, undefended. And what I saw that do, what that brings out of the nature of people who walk by was wonderful to see. It restored my belief, my faith, that humanity is fundamentally good when we take off all the covers over our hearts. Because if you if you're a Catholic in particular and you get all the way in front of the black Madonna and you're still covering, you're mean. Nobody covers at that point because you've reached the source of that goodness. That church has been there for all these centuries, radiating light. Now, that's, that's the, the story. And I saw true gold. I think a part of that is not... It's, it's the expectation. It's the, the beauty of the image. It's the preparation that takes you up there, going through that, that staircase that's narrow. Uh, All that is part of it. And the gold has a part of it because you've never seen more gold in your life than what coats the walls and the throne and the image. Although she is plain black wood. Mary herself. Black because of age, not because it started out as like, you know, ebony or something. It was uh, some hardwood that gradually darkened over the centuries. But, um... That's fire smelting true gold. Um, I'll tell you some other time about what is behind Guan Yin because there's another room. There's a round chapel behind the Blessed Virgin. You go, you walk past her, another ten steps, and here is, um, there's an image there of uh, Ignatius Loyola, who is, if anybody is keeping track, is not a Benedictine, but Jesuit. You know, he's the source of Jesuit faith. And the Catholics find it very uh, ecumenically minded, very big hearted to put an image. He's a fresco. He's not a statue. He's just in the wall. A big picture of the Jesus' soldier, you know, Ignatius Loyola, so that's another story. You go down the hall, turn right, and go through a passage into this round chapel, where I experienced the closest thing in architecture to the Abotamsica State, the Huyen Jingjie. That's another story. I'll tell you about that later. But whenever I think about smelting gold, I think of Montserrat because that the museum there has these these incredible historical treasures that were given as acts of faith by kings and emperors over the centuries. And they're right there in front of you. You get to see them very close. You just poke right up. Mind you, it's mm, bulletproof glass and hermetically sealed and all. But you, it's, there aren't that many folks in the museum paying attention. And you can get really close. And I understood gold. The way I never had before. Why people consider it so valuable? I think it's because when you smelt it back to 24 karat, take all the impurities out of it, all the other stuff, it reflects something of value. And maybe it's purity. Maybe because our, it's earth. We are earth. Somehow we recognize diamonds. I believe are the same. But gold has this quality. It's soft. Tom. Tom pure gold does not corrode like other metals. Tom says pure gold does not corrode like other metals. No rust. No, it doesn't change. And yet it's soft. You can put your fingernail in it. You can dent it. You in know. Interesting gold. Okay, um, I got another story, and it has to do with um, this notion of vigor. Okay, thus they always cultivate by day and by night, never lazy or fatigued. Probably nor is not the best, never lazy or fatigued. If nor, it would be neither lazy nor fatigued. So, ne- never lazy or fatigued is good. Their good roots brighten and become pure like gold that's been smelted in the fire. It means that. For the goodness to come out of us, we have to flap our wings till they turn white. We have to adjust and find the middle. We have to smelt in the fire. Um, what is that? This, in this idea of the bodhisattva is um, a notion of cultivation. That's our, that's our, our uh, jargon word. Cultivation itself, in English, we think garden. You think you cultivate a garden, and that's a pretty good analogy. Whether or not you've ever done that, some of you are gardeners right now. Some of you are maybe future gardeners, or if we go past peak oil, we, if the Gulf leaks enough oil, we may have to grow our own food. Subsistence gardening. there won't be food in the markets. That's the theory called peak oil, but we won't go there right now. The idea of cultivation is you've got a garden. You start out with a piece of ground. You have to break the ground open. You have to make the big chunks into small chunks. You have to make the small chunks into loam. You add things called amendments to to increase the tilth. You ready? T-I-L-T-H. All this new vocabulary. To increase the ability of the soil to hold water, to be balanced with the right pH, etc., all these things that have to do with gardening. If you just take the seeds, say you've got some lovely carrot seeds or some tomato sprouts, seedlings. You've already produced some green things and you want to grow tomatoes or carrots. If you just chuck the seeds out there, you might get lucky. But wind blows hard, the sun shines hot, not enough water, too much water, the ground is really hard, like cement. Guess what? Nothing comes up, right? So what do you have to do? You have to cultivate it, to break up the ground, make it nice and soft. You've got to put the seeds in at the right time, at the right depth. You have to water it the right amount. Mm. If they need fertilizer, you have to fertilize it. Then something comes up. You gotta watch out for the birds the deer, the squirrels, the kids, the cats. Who knew that cat piss was so deadly to plants, right? A cat goes out and they go, Keep, get away from there. Don't pee there. <laughs> the cat doesn't understand that. So, uh, thanks, you. you made the whole place a cat box. Thank you so much. You cleaned it up really nicely for me. You know, so you have to protect the seeds. You have to put the stakes down and get them coming up so the sprouts grow. Then, uh you have to know mm, you have to have knowledge you have to to be skillful to bring even simple things to to fruition you harvest them at the right time you share a little bit with the birds and the bugs, and you uh, have grown food okay you cultivate it's a lot of work a lot of work involved but we who were raised on supermarkets, you know, we don't know. It is hard. It's hard work to get food. You got to drive. You got to get out. Of, you got the parking spots. You got to go in, get the card. You know, you got to make sure you brought your Ralph's card. You know, and you know, Andronico's and bag it and take it out and take it home. Put it in the fridge. It's a lot of work. So. It's hard work in cultivation and you have to keep at it. If you do like two thirds of the gardening jobs and leave one third off, like you forget the water, you know, it doesn't work. You gotta keep it going. And the plants have their own time. It's a natural, organic, cyclical process. You you they tell you when, you know. You don't hurry it up. Come on, grow faster. You know. Grow less zucchini, please. Not so much zucchini, it does it, right? You have to accord with it, so that 's the process of cultivation and as I learned about this from Master Srehua, who is known as a cultivator, our teacher was was famous among monks for being somebody who really paid attention to cultivation, and not all Buddhists do. Um, particularly in what's called the Dharma Ending Age. Many people say it's wrong to cultivate now. You shouldn't work. Um, the idea that I think this passage, thus they always cultivate, ru shi chang ye shi, wu xie juan, they do it by day and by night without fatigue, and yet it's effortless. They're not leaving smoke behind. It's not that their, their brakes get hot as they cultivate. They don't burn out They can keep it going because they found this effortless way of goodness and kindness and selflessness. That's what keeps them going. Um, They can do it in a way that finds the groove still adjusting too much and too little. All right. That groove is relative. What do I mean? Let's look at um, Master Sheng description of what it means to cultivate. Um, I did a pilgrimage at one point in my my form, early formation as a monk, and it involved a lot of bowing. I did I bowed a lot, bowed every day, and I bowed outdoors because this was a practice called three steps, one bow, which which was, is done geographically. You do it from one place to the other. And you travel as you go. And bowing is not a way to go if you need to get there in a hurry. You've got to go slowly if you bow. And I bowed uh, myself and the, my companion, the other monk I was with, we covered a mile a day. And we bowed for eight hours on the average. We started in the morning at, at uh, 7.30 and finished at sunset. And so we went really slowly. And people looked at that and said, you know, what do you guys plan to get out of that? Losers? Get a job. <laughs> but well, this is our job. <laughs> we're bowing. <laughs> yeah, well, you make me uncomfortable. Why do you have to work like that? And if they were... Uh, if they were evangelists, and we got evangelized, proselytized about every day, it was things like, you can't work your way to heaven by faith alone. You know, So that's another story. But, you know, Jesus sees your efforts as filthy rags. That was the phrase we heard over and over. So, all right. Uh, and then we also found... Uh, Stalwart Christians who would come and square off with the proselytizers. So we often were championed by by diligent, vigorous Christians who were of a different different perspective. So that's not to say that Christians only proselytized. We had as many defenders uh, as there were uh, preachers. So the idea is, where do you start? In understanding vigor, the word is vigor. It's a paramita, jingjin. Jin. You cultivate with vigor. Vigor. Uh, it's the same root as the word virtus or virus, strength. So sometimes the paramita, the perfection of vigor, is called the perfection of strength or effort. Sometimes virya in Sanskrit. So, what's the idea? Master Hua says in Modeling the Sutras that you have to hold on tight enough to get to the top of a 100-foot pole. If you can get to the top of the 100-foot pole and take another step, you're free. Was the way he said it. So I said to how, how tightly do I have to hold on to the 100-foot pole? and he said hold hold on tight enough not to fall off so interesting image of cultivation going like climbing up a pole in other words here's here's the sense that i here's how i made sense of that right if we don't do anything in terms of spiritual practice for sure impermanence will catch us we'll die for sure it's you don't have to do anything and you can, you'll, your life will come to an end. And you can be more ignorant the day you die than you were when you were born. You can increase in ignorance so that our nature can increase in covers. We can go the other way from clarity, from understanding, without effort. It's easy to slide back uh, it's effortless to to slide back. Just go to Las Vegas and spend a week in the casinos, and it seems effortless to just lose all your money. Just I just kept feeding that machine, and pretty soon my pockets are empty. You know, I just walked over to the tables, and before I knew it, you know, and man, I had I just had one more number. I needed an eight, and it was a seven. You know, gone. Dude, it's effortless to lose all your money at a casino. It's the same way. So. If you decide you want to do something different with the Buddha as your model, then you can, but it takes effort. It's effortful. You have to day and by night without, by day and by night, without fatigue. So people looked at the monks bowing and said, "Why are you doing this?" do I have to do that if I'm a Buddhist too? Do all Buddhists have to do that? No, thanks." No, I'd rather. We even had a. Uh, uh, outside of San Luis Obispo, these two drunks came up. And there's uh, looking. Look at these losers, boy. Ah, they don't get married. Ugh. Look at that. You guys don't drink, right? You don't drink. Ah. You got any money? No, no money. Yeah. You smoke dope? <laughs> no. Man, I'd rather be dead than whatever you are. <laughs> like, okay, okay. Wait around. <laughs> you know, now does that mean we won't die? No, not at all. Everybody dies. But the point is, most people, I think more people would agree with the drunks than, than with the monks, but like, <laughs> you know, i would rather be dead than do what you do, because why it looks too bitter. Cool cool. it looks too bitter to do what the monks do. do all Buddhas have to do that? so it 's like, how do I make sense of that? You know, growing up as a baseball playing TV watching folk singer in toledo ohio what what in the world am I doing out there? So I got a beautiful analogy from a cactus. Um, from Santa Barbara north, um, during the the years, the seven years of the California drought back in the '70s, which is when we were doing this, there were cactus that we saw, and the cactus, there's agave, mesquite, prickly pear, um, California cactuses, and most people see cactus as useless, worse than useless. They got thorns, right? It's just you don't want to do, you not get close to a cactus. Cactus grow in places where people don't go. They grow in the desert. They grow in these salty bottomlands. And they're, they look, they're, they're strange looking. They just stand there. They got these thorns. You know, what's good about a cactus? Well, we had um, some California Native Americans tell us about cactus lore. Who knew? First of all, cactuses put out incredibly wonderful flowers. certain time of year, incredibly wonderful fragrant flowers, cactus flower. And the, this Native American said, our teacher, our shaman, tells us that cactus is like a drugstore. It's the drugstore of the desert. What most people see as most useless or even harmful with those thorns can sustain your life if you know what to do with it, if you know how to use it. For example, he said, there's fruit, prickly pear, really delicious. You have to burn the thorns off. You have to know how to use fire to get the thorns off, and you can't miss because you get a, take a mouthful of prickly pear with thorns, and you'll never forget it. Um, so you can bake the fruit, you can boil it into jelly. You can eat it raw, you can fry it. It's full of me- medicinal goodness. You can turn it into jelly. You can use the seeds for medicine. You can use it as a poultice to stop bleeding, or to heal you if you sprain. Um, you can use it as hair tonic. Native Americans did. Uh, it is the cactus provides adobe for the house walls, stucco to cover the walls against the weather. It um, the thorns are useful in a whole variety of things, including needles. And the prickly pear and the agave and the mesquite, if you know how to do it, becomes like a department store, like a drugstore. It's full of goodness and will sustain your life. It looks really bitter outside. It's really sweet inside. The, cactus
1: juice
0: can be used as shaving cream. the which can be? Cactus juice can be used as shaving cream. I'm assuming you've taken all the spikes off it, right? No? <laughs> right? You use it as a beard substitute. You can use cactus juice as shaving cream. There you go. All right. Who knew? Thanks, Kevin. So, bitter, thorny outside, very sweet inside. So, there was a a wonderful verse in the avatamsaka that I saw that made sense of cactus to me, and it goes like this. It says, In this way they cultivated all the difficult ascetic practices and perfected the gates of the Vini Paramitas. They entered and realized the Bodhisattva's grounds of wisdom, and accorded with the unsurpassed awakening of all the Buddhas. So, cultivation looks too bitter from the outside, but it's sweet inside. The vigorous practices, just the the doing of the kindness, the doing of the goodness, of this unselfishness, looks hard from a world that says, I'm loving it. The world is out for me and mine. Cultivation looks too bitter. But inside, what it yields is wisdom, compassion, eloquence, and Bodhi, awakening. So when we saw that, we, uh, we, we called it from that time on, we called it cactus practice. The idea that it's bitter outside, but really sweet inside. And um, it's that the notion of no pain, no gain, right? Anybody who's done Bikram yoga or, uh, you know, uh, who's into training knows the idea that if it burns, it feels good after. It releases all kinds of endorphins and it's pushing against the grain. They say, 逆水, 行周, it's like rowing upstream. You have to use effort. 不进自退, if you don't keep rowing, the stream will pull you backwards. It's the same idea in cultivation. So, those are images of, of practice. And in the end, what are you doing? You know, like, you finally have to turn the TV off and stand up. And, have you learned anything useful? Or is just time passed? So I ask myself that all the time. What am I doing? You know, how many websites can you click on? How many uh, gadgets can you accumulate before you get the final gadget? You know, The last one. The one that finally works. Mm. But if you can instead cultivate the mind, then you have kind of the... You have the the mother chip. You've got the, the, uh, the basic input-output system. You have the code that produces all goodness. Okay, so that's just one stanza, but we're going to do three next week. And the image, there's another image coming up that is also a, uh, a recurring theme, which is the Bodhisattva as a merchant leader. Bodhisattva as a caravan leader. very interesting image from a time when commerce was done by courageous, intrepid people uh, putting their goods on the back of camels and going across trackless deserts. And the the sutra borrows that image to talk about what it means to, to cultivate the way. The, the wasteland of birth and death. All right, let's transfer merit and then uh, talk about What's ahead? On your uh, sutra sheets, you've got the dedication of merit here. We do it in English. have any particular place to transfer the merit Um, the the gulf oil spill is even though the world cup is hot right now it hasn't changed anything the if anything the uh, oil is spilling out faster than ever do you see the first sperm whale washed up poisoned by the oil under under the water So let's transfer merit and wish to mitigate some of that harm.